Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this panel, uh, Cyber Risk Wednesday on Waging Cyber Conflict, uh, the latest in the monthly series that the Cyber State Craft Initiative hosts here at the Atlantic Council. My name is Nora Bensahel. I'm a distinguished scholar in residence at the School of International Service at American University and also a non-resident senior fellow here at the Atlantic Council. It's my great pleasure to introduce our panelists, uh, which I'll do in a moment. Um, but what we'll do for the first part is, uh, after I introduce them, I'm going to ask a sort of opening set of questions. I'll then moderate a discussion among the panelists uh, for about half an hour or so, depending on, de I'm not sure exactly how long it'll go, depends on the quality of the conversation. Um, and then my plan is to leave uh, most of the last part open for questions and answers. So I hope this will be very dynamic and you'll be an engaged audience and uh, have your questions ready. Um, to my, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, I should have also mentioned that the media sponsor, that, sorry, the media partner for this event is uh, Passcode uh, from the Christian Science Monitor as well. So thank you for, for your support of this and, and cooperation with this as well. I'll introduce the panelists in alphabetic order, uh, going uh, from to my left to your right. Um, and that's the order that I'll ask them to make their opening comments in. Um, to my immediate left is Jason Healy. He's a senior research scholar at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, and also a non-resident senior fellow at the Cyber Statecraft Initiative. That non-resident part is a relatively recent development. He uh, ran that full time here and is still very actively uh, involved as well. Um, I'm not going to go through their full bios, but he also has a, a range of uh, government and military experience uh, that you can read the, all of the details of, which is uh, pretty impressive in the bio sheet that you have. Sitting next to him, Chris Inglis, who's a distinguished visiting professor in cybersecurity studies at the US Naval Academy. He also has a very distinguished uh, career, both in the military, uh, 30 years in the US Air Force, both active and reserve, and 28 years at the NSA, including the last, uh, including seven and a half years of that as the deputy director and the senior civilian in the agency. Uh, immediately to uh, his side is Brandon Valeriano, who is a senior lecturer at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Glasgow. And I should say that both Brandon uh, and Jay have uh, recent books on the subject. I'm sure they'll tell you more about them, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out that there are examples outside. And I hope you uh, take a look at them from uh, at the end of the event for more perspective on their thoughts on these issues. So I told the panelists beforehand, I'm going to kick this off with a, a fairly general question. Um, but I think that given the level of expertise we have on the panel, I think this is a good place to start our conversation about cyber conflict. And that's to ask each of you for your perspectives on what you think the most important aspect of yeah. waging cyber conflict is that we don't understand. This is, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, this is a new form of conflict, a new form of warfare. We'll talk more uh, during the panel about the differences there. Um, but this is really an area that, you know, just in the past few years is starting to be thought of as something important on the conflict spectrum. Um, and, you know, the issue is becoming more and more urgent as a policy issue, even though a lot of the conceptual thinking that underlies it is still catching up, I think, with a lot of the practical developments day to day. And so I'll, I'll start with, with you, Jay, and ask, uh, you know, what you see yeah. as the most important aspect. And that's interesting. I don't know whether to, like, seed this with things that we can all agree with or just, like, get, see if we can start some fights right off. But it does strike me that we... <laughs> that we, we say how new this is. I mean... I thought when I got involved in this in the 90s that I'd missed the, the I'd really missed the interesting part of it. When I got um, uh, jobs in this in the early 2000s, I thought I'd missed the most interesting time. So this is constantly new. 
um, the first cyber warfighting unit that did both offense and defense um, for combat missions uh, was US Air Force in 1995, the 609th Information Warfare Squadron. So right, you could have been a lieutenant at that unit and now have been retired as a colonel already, um, and yet we still treat this as new. Um, so for me, in, in, in direct answer of, of the question, um, I find that we, we often get buried down in the tactical and technical details. Um, anytime you hear someone saying, this is so fast, this changes so rapidly, um, this is all speed of light, um, attribution is hard, um, those things are all true, but they're true at the tactical and technical level. Um, the closer you are to the ones and the zeros, the more that's true. And what my book, and I think Brandon's book, which I highly recommend, um, did in my book is saying, well, yes, those tactical and technical truths are true, but they don't have to be relevant at the national security level. I mean, what we found in, our, uh, in, in my book was that the more strategically significant the cyber conflict, the more similar it was to conflict in the air, land, and sea. So the more strategically significant the conflict, the more similar it was to conflict in the air, land, and sea. So attribution was less important than national responsibility. Warning wasn't that difficult anymore. Warning became relatively easy because you could see who your adversaries were. They were other nation states, and you could generally tell if they were getting ready for a disruptive attack. It wasn't really speed of light. Maybe a, a single attack would be speed of light, but so what? Tactical attacks in every domain are fast. Um, and, but what was more important was the conflict over time that the most successful conflicts um, took place over weeks, months, years, not over milliseconds, of like the people that, are, that were focusing on the ones and zeros. And I think it has a very different impact on what winning and losing means, but I'll hold off on that till we, till we get. I, I don't think, I think we've, we're not recognizing in places where we've won, and that means we're probably recognizing places where we lost. And if we don't, as a national security community, understand the difference between winning and losing, that's pretty fundamentally not understanding the dynamics. Great, thank you. Chris? Um, in a word, clarity. Um, I think huh. that uh, clarity on uh, three parts. Uh, what do you mean one, by that? What do I mean by that? First and foremost, <laughs> what it is. What, what is huh. cyberspace? Um, we so hmm. often go to the technical corner. We talk about the bits, the bytes, defending servers, defending abstractions of things that matter in that space. Uh, the thing that makes cyberspace most interesting um, is that it involves people. Right? And my own definition is it's people, technology, and process. And, and the most vexing, the most opportunistic component of that, the weakest part of that, is the people and the process that binds them to technology. Um, so we need to be clear about what it is. We need to be clear about why we care. Right? The kind of storage of wealth and treasure, the ability of people to freely traverse that space, the sense of um, liberty that people enjoy when they connect to things through that space. Uh, those are great goods. We care about those. But we've not quantified or even qualified those in, I think red lines is a dangerous term, but in terms of those things that we say, we care more about this than that. These then are the things that we're willing to invest in to ensure that they're actually well cared for, or these things are the things that we're willing to defend um, to what end. Um, and then I think finally, clarity about roles. Um, one of the favorite questions in Washington is who's in charge? Mm -hmm. Fill in the blank. Um, I think within cyberspace, um, that's probably a decent question if you're in the middle of some crisis, some tactical event who's going to organize all the resources that have been marshaled to solve that particular event. 
But in the day-to-day -day bump and grind, the steady state that is the royal of cyberspace, it's a dumb question. Right? It turns out everybody's in charge. Everybody has a role and responsibility. And what we're looking for is the concurrent application of those authorities and those distinguished capabilities to achieve some good end. It works that way in other domains. It should work that way in cyberspace. I think the key thing is context, and you know, if you allow me to have my book here, um, and I have to be very uh, supportive of Oxford University Press because they've been very generous, and uh, it's only a $9 Kindle, which is rare for a dense academic book in some ways. But what I've been trying to do is kind of bring context back into um, cybersecurity because I think that's what we've kind of forgotten, and we kind of treat this like nuclear weapons or even terrorism in some ways, and we disconnect the cyber disputes we have from the ongoing international relations context. I think that's really key. And one of the deeper issues is that if we do that, we don't really think about the solutions to the problems that drive these incidents and drive these, these, um, these uh, escalating disputes that we see. And that's the real kind of story that we need to think about is a lot of these disputes are regionals. A lot of these disputes are connected to territorial disputes that we have ongoing in general. But the other thing too is if you really take a look at the data, if you really take a look at the macro perspective and do the things that I did and Jason did in his book, you can kind of in some ways take a perspective that we're in an era of cyber peace, that there has been a remarkable restraint. The difference though is that we're not seeing cyber war, we're seeing cyber espionage. And we've gone too far and to push this domain towards a domain of warfare and not necessarily think about what cyber espionage means and the sort of implications of these types of activities and what the OPM hack really means. It's not a new 9-11. It tells us more about our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. And that's a story we need to really think about. And that story even goes as deep as baseball as we've learned like in the last two days. So you know, there's a lot we need to figure out about cybersecurity, but we rush to kind of isolate it in its own domain. And I think context is key. International relations is key. And we've learned a lot in the last 100 years about why states fight. And we have kind of discarded that in the cybersecurity framework. And I think that's a shame. Well, that's, a, that's a kind of nice intro to the first question I wanted to pose to you as a group. And, and full disclosure, my background is as a military analyst. I understand the traditional forms of mm -hmm. conflict. And I'm, you know, as many people are trying to absorb what the emergence, even though it's been far longer mm -hmm. than we may appreciate, means for the future of war, the future of conflict, the future of international relations. Um, so building on that, and, and Jay, one of the things you said, I think one of the key questions is, what does it mean to win? a cyber war or a cyber yeah. conflict? Does this fall into yeah. the category of you know, the similarity to a land campaign or a naval mm -hmm. campaign or something like that, which is at least in principle supposed to have a clear end with strategic yeah. objectives? Or is it more along the spectrum of something like terrorism, which mm -hmm. is a problem that you know, has absolutely different groups that can be defeated, but probably as an international security concern is some, a, pr a problem you need to manage that you can't ever right. sort of get rid of. <laughs> Yeah, and, it, and you know, and we're, and we're looking across this in different ways that we're looking across. I mean, the, the way you expressed it there at the end of your question, it reminded me of one of, one of our colleagues, um, Greg Schaefer, used to be Assistant Secretary at DHS. When he talks to corporate boards, he says, this isn't a problem like a hurricane where you can just spend some money and, and you'll be protected from it. Um, this is like ants in your kitchen, right? I mean, no matter what you do to stop them, they'll find another way in. And that's a fun way to think about the, you know, on the crime side. Uh, on the conflict side, I, I really like the way Brandon Brandon's book and mine cover similar ground, but in different ways of knowing and, and, and thinking about it. You know, mine was more case studies and history. His was hard political science coded data. But I think we ended up in relatively similar places. In, in the winning versus losing, and, and I really like where Brandon let us in on this, um, one of the examples I use of is Estonia. 
Um, I was talking to a senior cyber leader of the United States one time um, and who repeated what I think was the normal, as much as we think about the 2007 fight in Estonia in this town, we tend to, I tend to hear one or two things from um, Department of Defense and other places. Sometimes they say, why are we talking about Estonia? All they ever did was lose one time, um, and uh, it's not even worth talking about. And these are folks that still like to walk the, ba the, the battlefield of Gettysburg, right? They walk the battlefield at Gettysburg because they think there's something that they can learn that will help them be a better military officer or DOD official today. But yet something that happened a couple years ago in cyberspace, they say, ah, why bother learning that? Um, but the part I hear more frequently is, well, Estonia got wiped off the network, or they took themselves off the network, to be more accurate, right? They lost that. They got, they, they got taken offline. Um, and this was from a very, very senior official. Um, and I don't see it that way in my book. I mean, to me, if you say they lo Estonia lost because they got taken off the network, you're focusing on the bits and the bytes. And it's true. The Russian um, hackers, hacktivists, uh, ignored or encouraged by the Kremlin, certainly got a tactical victory by taking Estonian websites offline. But the Russians were doing this, if you remember the story, because the Estonians were going to move a statue, you know, there was this Red Army um, soldier staring triumphantly um, off into the sunset, as I imagine it. Um, and they were going to move this statue. The Russians were angry, so they said, we'll attack so that you don't move the statue. And the Estonians moved the statue. The small nation, tiny nation, refused to be coerced by a larger nation. Moreover, the Estonians are now renowned for their cybersecurity expertise. They quickly got NATO was awoken to the Russian cyber threat and agreed to build a NATO cyber defense center in Tallinn, Estonia. So if, you, if you're talking to someone and they say Estonia got taken off the network, that is, in the national security sense, a tactical win. The Estonians notched up an operational win, because they, they refused to be coerced, and a strategic win, because now Russia's adversaries were warned to the threat, and the Estonians are renowned for their cybersecurity expertise. So to me, that is a resounding win. They won operationally and strategically. And they won for soft power reasons. Estonia won because they had allies. They speak French. French. They speak English. Um, they get to go around in their bow ties and you know, go around the West and convince them of how great they were. They were seen to be bullied by, um, by a large nation. Um, they won for very Joe Nye soft power reasons. They won because they had a part, you know, more defensible architecture. They had an internet exchange point um, that helped. And none of those things, friends, allies, internet exchange points, generally fit into what we think about as cyber power. So it really frustrates me sometimes that we can't recognize a win from a loss, which means we don't understand the most basic dynamics of cyber power. And if we don't understand why they win, then we're going to overestimate some parts of American cyber power, the counterattack, the deterrence, and underestimate the other parts, the role of the private sector to help, um, and the role of soft power. Thanks. Brandon, winning yeah. and losing. <laughs>
I mean, I completely agree with Jay. I mean, this is a key thing. Um, I have a whole cottage industry of basically calling Putin in Russia weak. I edited a foreign affairs called Paper Tiger Putin. And this is a lesson <laughs> we can take away from these conflicts is this idea that Russia won these things and, and you know, has made them more stronger just isn't true. All the cyber incidents, all the energy coercion they've done have put them off in a worse place. And Estonia is a very key example of how you can turn these perceived losses into victories. And this is a deeper question we need to think about. What is cyber coercion? Does it work? Is it a domain on its own? And will it ever be effective? And I don't think we've really grappled with that question so far because we've rushed to kind of state how important this domain is without actually really analyzing how and why it could be important. Do you want to jump in? I don't disagree. Um, I think that um, you know, most wins um, in life are qualified as opposed to quantified. Um, and, and the victor um, gets to declare what their objectives were. Um, kind of in a bit of a tangent, but it comes back to main point. Um, the North Koreans arguably had the most successful nuclear program on the planet. Most physicists would disagree because they would quantify the physical success of that program to achieve you know, measurable objectives. Um, but in terms of what North Korea is after, right, they have all of the time and attention they want right, from the nations of the West and, and China. Um, and that might, for them, constitute an enormously positive um, thing. They've gotten all they want. Same thing plays in cyberspace. It's no different. It, it's just like any other instrument of power you bring to bear. These discussions about the difference at the tactical level versus the strategic level, particularly whether you're achieving your aims or not, even if you score tactical <coughs> victories, is reminiscent of a debate inside the military. Right, where you know, very often you can, you can win a battle on a battlefield, but that has, unfortunately for the US, as we found over the last two wars, that may have nothing to do with whether you're going to achieve your strategic objectives at right. the strategic level. So, so I'll tease out something else that I think was suggested by my counterparts, um, but, but I'd make it explicit, which is that um, while cyber is unique, it has unique characteristics, it doesn't stand on its own. Um, we bring other instruments of power to bear to achieve objectives in cyberspace. Cyberspace can be brought to bear as an instrument of power to achieve objectives in other domains. It's connected. That's always been true about the various domains. It's no less true about cyberspace. And we tend to think then about any cyber activity deserving, warranting um, a counter cyber activity, whatever that might be. And I think that's a misnomer in terms of how it really works. And I love it in the, in the way that you express it and put it in other military terms. I mean, what if 20 years from now we look back and we said, oh, you know what? The nation that won in cyberspace wasn't the one that went out to seize the most digital hilltops. It was the one that won the hearts and minds of the digital natives around the world. Um, if that, you know, to put it in kind of counterinsurgency terms, right? If that's how we should be defining winning, if that's what actually is going to be the most successful nation that gets the best national security outcomes, we're not necessarily going the right path, right? I mean, a lot of what we're doing has been seen to alienate digital natives and others and might be taking away from our soft power. This is a really important question. I don't think we've really aligned ourselves up to be able to position to really debate that just yet. So what would we need to do in order to get there in your perspective? Um, I would, um, we haven't stated a clear priority of whether defense is, is a higher priority than offense. Um, I think the president sh should have come out in Stanford and said, of course there's a balance, and, we, and of course there are some people that we have to spy on, and of course we have to have offensive capabilities, but have no doubt, our digital prosperity, our innovation, our society, our using this to show everyone what America's values and culture is all about is absolutely the highest priority. I think you have to have a single strategy to do that. Right now, we've got different strategies for military. We've got different strategies for um, uh, the diplomacy side. 
and I think if you've got separate strategies, you can't find where they compete when you've got competing public goods. So I think we have to have a single strategy that ties these together and lays that out. Yeah, I think that's a real great point. We need a cyber grant strategy, and we haven't really figured that out. We're focused too much on the possibilities of the offense, but every military, every state, you know, we've always talked about America or Britain being the island fortress. You always defend yourself first. You always focus on resiliency first. But in the cyber domain, we're kind of Focus more on the new toys and tools that we can leverage towards coercion without really thinking about what we need to protect. And to me, that's the real story of the OPM hack, where yeah. our weaknesses are and how our vulnerabilities can you know, bring us down in the long run. And this is something we need to think about, about how we use digital information and where we go with that in the future. And right now, I don't think we have the right policy. So, so I would agree with your premise, but challenge your conclusion. Um, so if you read the most recent um, issuance of the U.S. Department of Defense um, strategy for cyberspace, um, the first point is that the Department of Defense will defend its own network's defense. Second point is it will defend, um, as necessary, um, help defend, right, the private sector and U.S. national interest around the world. Not attack, but help defend. And the third is on order, and only on order, right, be brought to bear as an instrument of some consequence in the support of larger mm -hmm. national or international objectives. Um, that, I think, goes hand in glove with the age-old strategy within the United States that offense must be an extension of defense. Defense always wins. But offense is the consequence you bring to bear as necessary to effect a good defense. But is that what we're really doing? I mean, the OPM hack, you know, you get a security vendor telling us where our vulnerabilities are. I mean, we talk about the defense all the time, but. Uh, we might be, be, be doing poor defense, but it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't say the defense true. isn't Very job true. one. Yeah. So. yeah. I, I would like that a bit more clear. I mean, right. in the, you know, for example, how much. How many people do we have in the civilian agencies of government that are working on digital in innovation, um, digital diplomacy, um, copyright reform, all of these other issues that are, I think, more arguably more important to the, to the nation's economic and probably national security um, in the medium run. But so, they're not the ones that are getting 6,000. I so mean, I agree. Cyber Command that's but, but I would 6, argue 000. that we probably have too few working on those defensive tasks and more than working on offensive tasks. Mm -hmm. So let me go back to the sort of military perspective on this, again, to see what, what works and what doesn't in the comparison to illuminate that. We talked a little bit about victory and strategic objectives. What about prevention? What about deterrence? We were starting to talk about this a little bit before the panel, and I was going to cut you off so we could keep it fresh for, for here anyway. Um, but you know, that's, again, from a military traditional conflict perspective, that's an important part of what the military does is a lot of prevention and shaping activities. But ultimately, the goal is to deter adversaries from attacking us in the first place. What of that logic holds up in cyberspace? There's a, a pretty wide debate on that in an era, in a, you know, medium where attribution is hard and so on. But are there things we can learn from that? Or is that just too foreign a concept or too inapplicable to this realm? Well, go ahead. I firmly come down on the fact that I don't think deterrence works in cyberspace. And this is sort of the academic discipline of the domain, where for deterrence to work, you need to demonstrate an effect and you need to have credibility. This goes back to Dr. Strangelove and how you know, Brody and Schelling and all of them talked about deterrence in the past. But we can't do that in cyberspace. If you demonstrate your capabilities, your capabilities then are out for anyone to, to use and to reuse and repurpose, as we see with like Dooku 2 and you know, Stuxnet being repurposed. So that's one problem. The other problem is we have a credibility issue. 
How do you demonstrate you're willing to use these weapons when no one's really even used these weapons that much? You know, we haven't seen Russia use it in Ukraine to great effect. America didn't use it in Libya, didn't use it in Iraq, didn't use it in Afghanistan beyond this low-level operational level. So if these states, these great cyber powers, are not going to use these weapons, then who is? And when we do see it used, it's for espionage. So it's not really in the realm of deterrence as we kind of conceive it traditionally as an academic field. And that's why I come down with the notion of cyber restraint, not cyber deterrence. Because as we kind of have hashed these arguments out for the last 70 years, we kind of have forgotten them in this new domain. And I don't think that's really a productive way of going forward with this debate. So I don't disagree with the merits of cyber restraint, but I do disagree that there's no role for cyber, well, kind of generalized, that there's no role for cyber deterrence. I would say that cyber deterrence is not unitary in two ways. One, um, there are many instruments that you bring to bear to try to achieve um, cyber deterrence. Only one of them is cyber. It might be financial sanctions, public shaming, mm. demarches, all manner of indictments. Um, mm. All of those instruments can be brought to bear, and they do have some influence. Um, at the end of the day, we, we have to remember that deterrence is really about shaping the mind, the actions of another human being, right? you know, as opposed to shaping the actions of a device or some inanimate object on the planet. Uh, the second way in, in which uh, deterrence is not unitary is that it doesn't have the same effect on all creatures. Um, it might have a certain effect on nation states that want to be responsible parties in the world. Mm -hmm. It might have no effect whatever on uh, nihilist or kind of those folks who are essentially against modernity. And we need to be careful about kind of coming up with a one-size-fits-all strategy that's either based on a single thing or that is aimed at achieving a single thing as if the world was composed of a monolithic set of people. Yeah, yeah. and. and um the, I, a lot of it is I'm not even sure necessarily deterrence is the right question. I mean, there's so many aspects of conflict dynamics, right? And to look at and to focus in as much as we have on that single part of deterrence, I think misses so much more like, like uh, crisis escalation, for example. Um, on deterrence itself, I, tend to, on the, I come down on the first part of what Brandon said, but, but less so on the second. I think obviously deterrence works, obviously but only above a certain level. Mm -hmm. um, at the level of, of nation, large nation states really using cyber capabilities against one another to cause death, death and destruction, right? You still run across people that say, well, why, uh, well, of course mainland China would take down the lights as soon as they can in the United States if they could get away with it. You know? and, and I was like, well, you know, we don't, nation states don't really do that against one another that much. Because um, we've probably been able to do that to China, and we haven't. How do you explain that? We have nuclear weapons. We haven't nuked China. How come? You can call that deterrence. You can call it restraint, a word that I picked up from Brandon. Never publicly thanked him for. Thanks, buddy. Um, the, so at the very least, we have to explain how come we haven't used significant nation-state capability on another nation-state. Yeah, We need, I think, to start to explain that. Now, that gets into the larger conflict dynamics. I've started calling it the Cartwright conjecture after, after um, General Cartwright, who is kind of representative of this, it's better to be feared in cyberspace. If people fear your capabilities, it's going to lead to better national security outcomes. Now, in my read of the evidence, having done a, a case study style history book, I can see it's certainly not proven. You can see sometimes where the use of a cyber capability might have stopped someone from doing an attack that was already in place. But that's tough to disentangle from just defense, from actually just thwarting him from doing what he wanted. But we've got tons of cases, strong cases, 
where the use of cyber capabilities from one side either causes the other side to counterattack or to imitate. To say, oh, that's the way the game is played, huh? Fine, we can respond. And we saw that um, most clearly with Iran. We had an event here, I think, two months ago on Iran. Um, you know, Iran gets hit by a wiper worm that hits their energy companies early on in the year. Later on in the year, they hit Saudi Aramco and Razgas with Shamoon. Um, so attack on them, pretty proportional counterattack. And that seems to be much more the model than you use a capability, you appear scary, and others back down. I just don't see the evidence for it. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about the domain now and you know, about the world in general is that we've become much more peaceful and we're very much concerned with the impact on civilian mm -hmm. populations. And that's the key story we have with cyberspace here is that you cannot disentangle cyber capabilities and cyber infrastructure from civilian infrastructure. So that's why I talk a lot about restraint because there is this sort of taboo against using these technologies towards civilians and you can't really limit your effects in cyber towards certain targets. We've learned that over and over again. And to me, that's the real story. Mm -hmm. That's why we have cyber restraint. I don't know if it's really deterrence, but it's more about what's acceptable in the international domain. And right now, it's clearly not acceptable to target civilians. It's clearly not acceptable to target critical infrastructure. That may change if there's a serious international incident of a World War III level conflict, but I don't really see that developing right now. And that's kind of where we are with cybersecurity. So that's a perfect segue to my next question, except in a way I'm gonna flip it back on you. So my question that I'm still wrestling with myself is what, what cyber conflict or cyber issue rises to the level of a national security threat or a national security interest, right? And, and there's one obvious answer to that. It's the it could be, for example, the involvement of another nation state or state sponsorship of capabilities. Um, but here's where I flip where you just said, what you just said. You know, is it that? Is it who's involved? Or is it what the consequences are for the United States? Right? Mm -hmm. What if it's an attack on our civilian infrastructure? Mm -hmm. right? And in the spirit of shameless self-promotion, you guys have books, but I co-author a column every two weeks in War on the Rocks. And one of the first ones that we published was, had the very provocative title, Is Land Warfare Dead? And you know, we meant that a little tongue-in-cheek because I actually do think that we need to prepare for the future of land warfare. But the point of the article was to say, what if there's a huge hit through cyber means on our power grid, right? Or on our you know, other critical infrastructure? I don't just mean that in the government term of critical infrastructure. What if it's, you know, what if all of our iPhones, God forbid, you know, what if all of our iPhones go down at the same time? What we if can we get can't... something done. <laughs> But you know what, in terms of the consequences to the civilian population, can you think of it as you know, national security in that way? Do we need to have the Department of Homeland Security or some other agency thinking more about defending the nation than DOD traditionally? What do you guys think about that? Well, one, I think the real threshold is death and destruction. And if we do see that, that will be the real cyber war. But I'm not necessarily sure we will see that. And this is the other question we have to think about. Like, what was the effect on Estonia when the networks were shut off by the government? You know, was that really devastating? And we make it seem like it was devastating. We may seem like it will be devastating to lose our cell phones or to loss, lose access to our bank accounts. But that money is still there. Everything is still there. Things have changed so much in the last few years, we become digitally dependent. And I like Michael Gross has a great little book chapter, he's from the University of Haifa in Israel, where they actually do biological research to show that your 
your threat levels literally go up. Your biology changes when you lose touch with digital infrastructure. And we've gone too far with that. We've become too dependent. And that's the real question. Are our dependencies making us vulnerable? I, I just quibble a little bit. I'm not sure that our money is there if the records of the banks are permanently wiped out. I mean, that could cause a severe crisis of confidence in the whole system that may not cause death and destruction um, unless there are runs on banks to get cash and where people trample each other. But I mean, that would certainly have huge national significance. So I'm of both minds, and so let me argue both sides and come down somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think that it must depend upon whether it's a nation state that's attempting to do some harm, whatever that harm might be, to um, this nation state or any nation state, um, regardless of the effect. If a nation state gets up one morning and says, I intend to do you harm of some, you know, some shape or form, that must be an issue for right, the targeted nation state. Now, the response should be proportionate. In some cases, it should be no response whatsoever because it doesn't deserve a response. But it can't be something you simply say to your private citizens, it's your job to defend yourself against that nation state that's attempted to do you harm. That may be that you allocate, delegate, allow, right, other instruments of power to be brought to bear, private citizen instruments of power, local law enforcement, um, you know, perhaps a private sector power. But, but the nation state has an interest in that because if the nation state cedes that to its citizenry, what then happens is the citizenry say, I think I know how this works. I'm supposed to defend myself. And the citizenry begins to stand in the shoes of the government, exercising inherently governmental powers in the realm of cyberspace, perhaps doing surveillance outside their own borders, perhaps saying, I'm, while I'm over there, maybe I'll just kind of stop this thing kind of by having some light touch effect on the server that I found this nefarious agent operating from. Or perhaps taking it one step further, saying, while I'm over there, why don't I just do some punitive action against that party who did something to me, therefore causing a secondary or tertiary response, which all of a sudden becomes a nation-on-nation -nation set of activities. Inherently, governmental power should be retained by the government. That's the one side. The other side, though, is we need to be really careful about having the nation state step in and intrude upon the private sector's affairs, intrude upon something that isn't um, wholly owned, operated, or made resilient by the nation state itself. And so we need to be very, very careful about how the nation state operates in that regard. Um, but you can see that the United States has come full circle. Mm -hmm. Summer of 2012, um, early 2013, when allegedly a nation state was attacking financial infrastructure, the United States stood off and said, this is a private sector matter, right? Late 2014, early 2015, mm -hmm. when North Korea got up and um, arguably attacked Sony Pictures, a private sector entity that has multiple, um, perhaps, parents in terms of its nation state uh, orientation. Um, but, but when that happened, the United States stepped up and said, this is an issue for the United States government, but we will respond proportionately to whatever that mm -hmm. might be. Confused everyone, which might be an aspect of deterrence. Um, <laughs> I've counted two with my kids quite, all, quite often. I never get to three. No one knows what's going to happen when I get to three. Um, so there's some amount of deterrence being affected in the English household. It works as well on the national stage. Yeah. And something I'd like to pick up on, uh, on the Sony, because I think it's interesting. Like, I don't think the president, because it hits that threshold, right, I'm on national security. You know, I don't think that would have been a national security issue if Sony would have just released the damn movie. But by not releasing the movie, it was a successful attack by a nation state against free American freedom of speech. If it was just a nation state attack that dismembers a company, it's still a national security issue, but it doesn't rise to the level of the president. But once, once it's successful in not releasing free speech, then I think it forced the president's hand to, to get involved in that. And, right, and so when we talk about active war and national security, right, we're like, well, are there, are there dead people? You know, this was a much more subjective political thing that happens at the level of, of heads of state that we often forget about when we, when we try and treat it as calculus. Um, 
so I do go back to the death and destruction on this. Um, one of the things, when you talked about value being wiped out of the bank accounts, it's one of those dynamics that I think that we get wrong a lot. Um, it's really, really difficult to pull off an advanced cyber attack. I mean, it is extraordinarily difficult. Right? We have this image, and, and I, I, like Chris, I came up through the Air Force, and as an airman, we were taught, you know, right, we thought that in early World War II, you know, we could just bomb a factory or bomb a, a runway, right? And that would be it. But they come back and they fix it, right? In the face of determined defenses, attacks are hard because they will try and thwart you and they will repair the damage. And you have to stay at it over time. And that's why cyber is not something for kids in their basement, right? It's easy for kids, at, you know, the iconic kids in their basement, to take a target down. But keeping a target down over time in the, in the face of defenses is really, really difficult. And that's one of the reasons why we haven't had these kind of significant attacks. It's not just deterrence, it's, it's really difficult to do. Now, it's easy to bounce back from them because all that's being taken down are ones and zeros, things made of silicon. So I'm not nearly as calm as Brandon on this because the more that we're doing smart grid, the more that we're doing the Internet of Things, we're now connecting concrete and steel. We're now putting this stuff in our bodies. And when the concrete and, concrete and steel fail because of a cyber attack, people are going to die. It's going to escalate very quickly. Let me just pick up on that. I think that I, I understand your point that it's really hard, and that's a good thing in a lot of ways, yeah. but sort of the, the responsibility of the national security professional or maybe the cyber professional mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is to plan and prepare for those things that may be extraordinarily unlikely but incredibly high consequence if they happen. And I think you're in that realm yeah. if you're talking about well, we, something like we that. We started next week is going to be the anniversary of the first time we said the word digital, electronic Pearl Harbor. <laughs> um, and that was 1991, right? So what's that, 24 years of the... 74 years since the actual Pearl Harbor, we've been talking about electronic Pearl Harbor, and it hasn't happened yet, right? So we can say, well, we need to worry about these high you know, low probability, con high consequence attacks, or we might just not understand cyber power. So, so, so I think we do have to worry about these um, low probability, high consequence attacks. We worry about nuclear, the use of nuclear power mm -hmm. against this nation. We have this thing called the mutually assured destruction. It's simply mad. It's well named. But we worry about that because however inconceivable it is, we need to be prepared for that moment in time when that occurs. Now, hopefully we deter it. Hopefully we do everything in our power to stave it off. It'll never happen. But we do have kind of tucked away in the corner kind of the set of activities of what do we do to deter that, to understand that, to push that back, to make it such that if it ever happens, we kind of protect our people and, and the people we're allied with to the best extent possible. The same thing's true for kind of a cyber cataclysm. But I agree with Jay um, that, that it's, it's not probable that that's going to happen. What's much more probable, what is in fact actually happening, is that the termites are in the house. We have this slow, insidious rot within cyberspace that makes it such that our greater concern at the moment, however much we should give some time and attention to the cataclysm, the greater concern at the moment is the lack of resilience, robustness, um, the lack of due diligence applying so many authorities side by side by side to essentially defend the wealth and treasure that's already at risk in that space. Chris, I want to go back to the point that you raised at the beginning, and this will be my last question to you all before I open it up to the audience for questions, so get your questions ready. Um, you mentioned at the outset that you know, this is essentially everybody's responsibility uh, you know, in terms of roles and missions, and uh, you know, the, the key is how to coordinate them and make sure that all pieces are, are covered. 
how do you do that? And, and I'll be more specific, even just limiting it to the US government perspective, even if you put aside all the challenges of coordinating the government and the private sector and, and all so that. So you're going to let me off the hook on that one? Or? Well, I'm sure someone here will right. you know, do that for me. So I'll, I'll just give you the, <laughs> the government piece of that. What does the US government need to do in terms of getting its own house in order to be as prepared for the wide range of challenges that we face in, you know, in ensuring an adequate response? Uh, what, well, in terms of how you phrased the last part of that question, the government leads to lead by example, and I think arguably the government's had a hard time doing that. I don't think there are any um, exemplary models out there of you know, the defense of wealth and treasure in cyberspace. Uh, we're learning as we go. But to the first part of your question, um, I'll by way of analogy perhaps draw one from the physical realm. Uh, in physical space, um, individuals are expected to take some time and care to protect their property. If they don't, their insurers are unlikely to insure them. If you call your company, your insurance company, and say, my car was stolen, and the last time I saw it, the engine was running at the corner with the keys and at the window rolled down because it's easier for me to get in and go in the morning, um, you're not likely to have that insurance company pay off. You weren't actually responsible in your protection of private property. At the same time, there are police that are helping to um, effect civility, order, discipline within those neighborhoods. At the same time, right, you've got an army that serves abroad trying to fight you know, some of our battles overseas, right, the ones that should be fought. We can argue about the policy aspects of that. At the same time, the Department of Homeland Security is protecting ports, airports. At the same time, North American Air Defense Command is scanning the skies over North Korea lest they fire a missile and they shoot it down. All of those parties operate concurrently. There's no surprise to the left or the right as to what broadly is happening um, across that horizontal landscape. Right? That's a well-practiced, over time, hundreds of years, a well-practiced collaboration of those multiple authorities, multiple capabilities, multiple disciplines. Uh, we lack the experience and we lack the clarity to achieve something similar in cyberspace. And the government can help by um, articulating what it thinks its own responsibilities are, what it sees, perhaps, um, as, as responsibilities necessarily in a private sector that owns, operates, runs 95% of cyberspace. And the government can lead by kind of taking an incentivized um, view of the world as opposed to a consequential view of the world. Um, as opposed to leading with regulations that imposed consequences um, for the failure to defend in that space, the government might say, we'll incentivize information sharing. We'll incentivize people taking on responsibility. And we'll show you by our, our own example that we'll lead by that example in terms of how we spend our money, our time, and our attention. So I think that's a way to start. Um, and to Brandon's pro you know, kind of question, I think that we need to articulate what is the grand strategy, not a series of grand strategies, but what is the grand strategy? Um, that, that at least people can say, I think I begin to understand the spirit of this thing, and I will then, from the bottom up, figure out how I support this thing. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think one of the key problems is a deep mistrust in government. And this has been a key issue, like, say, with the Sony hack, that people just didn't believe the American government until they came out and said forcefully, this is how we know and this is why we know it. And this is a deeper story of, say, 9-11. We keep talking about it as a failure of imagination. But it's a failure to connect the dots. We can connect the dots if there's cooperation between private industry and government. But right now, they're just, it just isn't being built. There's too much mistrust. I know there's lots of bills kind of floating around. I hope something moves forward. But we need to think more about how to encourage cooperation, how to do it at a level that actually is functional. How do we share information? How do we get beyond the level of Sony getting hacked and running to the government, but instead having cooperation before that happens? Because we knew there were vulnerabilities. We knew this was a threat vector. 
but we keep thinking about, you know, imagining the black swan, imagining what could happen, but there's so much evidence about what will happen based on what we know that is going on now or what has happened in past history. And that's why we need to learn from history. That's why we need to learn from social science, is try and predict these things. Because you can't really predict the black swan. That's something you can never really predict, because that's just in the definition of what these things are. I, and I like that, that last point in the learning from, from history and social sciences. The, um, one of the things that really struck me when we, when we did our history book was when you look at the big cyber conflicts and, and cyber calamities, almost none of them were decisively resolved by governments. In almost every case, it was the private sector. Um, you know, the Microsofts, the Symantecs of the world, um, the AT&Ts, Deutsche Telekom, British Telekom, NTTs that were there to say, oh my god, what's going on? How do we stop this? And so I think one of the things that I've tried recommending to White House and DHS and others is if you're going to do, for example, a new incident response plan for cyber, which the government's been trying to do, but it gets caught up in these roles responsibilities, don't try and do a new checklist. Go back to these historical cases that Brandon writes about, I write about, um, and say, who made what decisions and took what actions? What information did they need? What information had to get shared? What information did they have from their own sensors or could they just buy? And then how did the government, what role did the government have to play? And instead, we're jumping right to we have to share information. When we don't even know what information needs to get done or who needs it to make what kinds of decisions and take kinds of what actions. Now, if you go back to history, you can pull that out and you can figure out who did what and they needed what kind of information. We could then go in with grants, for example, to make sure that that's going to happen, or incentives. But right now, we still don't, because we don't understand winning and losing, we don't understand the cyber power, we're not understanding, I think, the dynamics of who needs to do what. Great. Social sciences, yay. Thank you all very much. Now it's your turn. No <laughs> shortage of hands. Uh, let's start over here. Please um, give us your name and your affiliation. And also, I will be rather harsh about enforcing that you ask a question, not make a statement. So okay, please, go ahead. Um, quick question. Sharon Bovet, voice of a moderate. In a couple of weeks, I'm taking my 13-year-old on a Disney cruise to the Baltics. Yeah. And we're going to Estonia and Lenin. Well, it's not Leningrad anymore. That's what it was the first time I went. But it's St. Petersburg. Now, uh, my uh, DOD friends are like, you're not going. I go, yeah, I'm going. Going, and my State Department friends thought it would be good because of the great vodka. And I'm looking at my internet security and my computer, and my CyberHawk friends want me to leave my computer at home, my iPhone at home, get clean new ones. Is there any, when you can't have two agencies kind of agree on what you should take if you're just going as a tourist with a kid on a Disney cruise, how do you tell the American people what they need to do when they travel to be protected cyberly? Cyberly? I like that. Cyberly. <laughs> Why don't you go first? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's tough, right? Because we're, we're tough on the risk management and knowing. I mean, it's not just the different agencies that you get a different answer from, but it's different individuals that might say, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. You've got more to fear from the mouse than, than anything else, or I don't know. The, um, but yeah, I mean, we're still trying to figure out the, the risk management aspects of, of this. Um, it does get into, it also does get into Russia in particular in this moment with Russia, and, and I'd like to come back to that, but I'm not going to answer it as part of this. Um, personally, I just leave the stuff on the boat, but I know that's not what you're, I know that's not what you're asking. 
That's what I would do too. Um, and I, I would say, you know, so I, I recently traveled to Estonia. I had a smartphone now that the danger is past us. I carried it with me everywhere I went, and I had, uh, you know, nothing untoward happened. Um, Russia may be another matter. I don't know. I've not been there recently. Um, but, you know, having said that, I would just say the same thing that you're going to do if you drive home tonight, defensive driving, you know, just think about whether there's information on that that you wouldn't want to expose to someone else if you store passwords on that, social security numbers on that, bank accounts on that with, you know, predefined uh, passwords, you probably want to leave that on the boat or, you know, better yet, in a safe at home um, as you travel to and from those places. But, but if you're willing to take the risk with what information you have on that, um, then just do it um, with, with some common sense. And, and, does, and the larger to get to the spirit of your question is this misunderstanding and how can we communicate this. I mean, it's not like, it's not different from, you know, like you said, like driving, right, and defensive driving. I mean, driving is an insanely dangerous thing to do. It's probably the most dangerous thing that we do. And if you talk to a risk expert, they're going to tell you, are you crazy to drive? Don't you know? you know, what the actual rule says of how, how dangerous that's going to be. But of course, we've got to get from place A to place B. And so you've got people that, that end up on different places on this risk spectrum. And, um, and it doesn't surprise me that we're still working. working yeah, and we need that. to be kind of consider this idea that there is no such thing as total cybersecurity. You're never going to be totally protected. If you write it down, if you put it on your computer, it will be vulnerable. You know, we need to accept that. We kind of fear this domain way too much. There's too much of a psychological imperative from what's going on and what's changed in the last 20 years. And we need to rethink kind of how digitally dependent we are. You know, it's kind of hilarious when the Russians bought all the typewriters. But, you know, that's kind of you know, what we need to start thinking about doing. If we put these things in big digital dumps, someone can take them. Someone can get access to them. So what do we write down? What do we keep? What do we allow ourselves to be vulnerable? And what do we share? And I'm but, really, but, but it is a teaching moment for your 13-year-old, and, and you might just kind of walk them through the various things they do at home, where they're probably even at, at greater risk. Way to go, Dad. That's really oh, good. Well done. I'm, I'm going to, because there are a lot of hands in here, up here in the front. And Mike, we'll, we'll come to you. Thank you. Uh, Randall Fort with Raytheon. Um, Jay, you touched um, on something, the Internet of Things. So the technology is not standing still. The technology is moving very, very rapidly. When we get to IPv6, there will be 10 to the 124 things that we'll be using IPv6. That's a number so big, there isn't even a name for it. So as you look over the next 10, 15 years, say 2030, when there are a trillion plus internet of things connected devices, and when all this technology has gone through 10 or 15 Moore's Law cycles and is you know, a half a billion times more, better, faster than today, and you look at this issue of cyber conflict, we'll be having wearables and implantables mm -hmm. and everything will be connected. Do these issues about cyber conflict become more acute? Certainly the vulnerability will be many times greater than the static point we're at today. So I just wonder, where does your thinking take you in 10 or 15 years? Now, Ford, I feel really good about this, because as fast as the technology moving is moving, the policy making in DC is moving even faster. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, uh, the look on your face is totally well, worth it for that joke. Right, so. um, the, uh, <laughs> crack myself up there. That's going to be the quote um, from you from this yeah, event. Yeah, um, yeah, no one tweet that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, absolutely. The consequences are, are, are a lot worse um, because you're getting into this where life and death is now a lot more. Um, and so we need to be much more significantly worried about that, but we're going to be unlocking benefits faster. Um, we're just doing some work now with Zurich Insurance to look at how to, as we're getting these benefits to the economy, 
how does that stack up with the risks that we're taking on this? So um, we'll come by and we'd like to get your thoughts on it in a bit, but we're really starting to come out with these great numbers. And even in the worst case, well, in the likely worst case, we're still getting a lot more benefits out of this. So. And I think we're going to have to kind of parse this by which security properties do we care most about, right? If you, if you worry about confidentiality, privacy, that's going to be enormously at risk in an Internet of Things mm -hmm. when everything is connected to everything. Um, but if you worry about availability, it might well be that we create a certain resilience or robustness because there's so many opportunities out there to turn to a different service or a competing service. Um, and, and so it's going to be a much more heterogeneous, you know, even though it's in incredibly internetworked, a much more heterogeneous and therefore possibly resilient um, network simply on the basis of how it's built. I love what Jay said about opportunities, and this is the key thing. We talk about the cyber domain from the perspective of vulnerabilities and what we fear and our weaknesses. And really, we need to rethink this and think about what we've gained just by cyber economics, by having this digital infrastructure, how we've expanded the economy so much. Because you know, Jay's tweeted this before. Every time there's these like reports saying we lost $100 million to cyber attacks, but we don't talk about you know, how many trillions we've gained. So we need to really think about this sort of uh, this idea of perspective of losses versus acceptable risks and versus gains. And if we do start to move to this era where wearables come about and you know everything is controlled by a digital infrastructure, you know how much better does that make our lives? And if it doesn't make our lives better and it leads us to be more vulnerable, then we need to rethink that path. But if we are going to expand what is possible in human life and in security. We need to think about what we're gaining in totality, and we just keep thinking about this from the domain of losses, which is problematic. Yeah. DC talks losses, California talks benefits. And, and I'm not saying that either one of those is right, but we need to be better in talking together. In, in the back on the end of the aisle. Hi, I'm Todd Rosenblum, and formerly of DOD, formerly of the IC, formerly of the Hill, and did a lot of work on homeland defense. Mm -hmm. So quick comment and question. One, the issue of rising to the, you know, what's an attack on the nation? That is an age-old question. And if you ask some people, they'll say every time a go-fast boat penetrates US waters, we've had an attack on the nation. So I don't think there's much unique here we're talking about in the cybersphere. Right. But one thing I really wanted to press a little bit, and Chris talked about, hi Chris, some unique attributes of the cyber field um, because I'm still not hearing really that there is such a thing as cyber war. And I wonder how much we're getting trapped ourselves by calling it warfare, therefore militarizing it, when first off the idea of recruiting in the military the best minds is going to be awful hard. I mean, I don't know why we don't also look at the alternative of why not the Department of Commerce or why not some other blend elsewhere. So I, I'm just curious from all the panelists, is there, are we leaning in way too hard and way too fast in even using the term cyber war? The private sector talks about cyber war much more than the US Department of Defense talks <laughs> about cyber war, so I'll just lead with that. Um, the Defense Department calls itself just that, the United States Defense Department. But that said, right, there is a fair amount of discussion on that. And, and I would say that um, in, in the realm of collaboration or competition or conflict, cyber is an instrument of power. Right? And, and we should make sure that if we care about prevailing or preventing um, various aspects of that, 
um, that we develop a cadre um, of people within our society or the coalitions that we're a part of who actually can bring to bear the requisite skills. And those skills, I think to Jay's point, aren't simply technical skills, they're human factor skills, e legal skills, you know, ethics, um, the ability to understand other cultures and how they'll respond to something. All of those should be brought to bear to achieve end purposes of collaboration, competition, or if need be, co conflict in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't think we've seen cyber war, even though I wrote a book that says cyber war versus cyber realities. But this is the thing, this cyber war framework sells. It's so like, uh, you know, it, it's so distracting. And that's the problem, that we really need to think about this in the framework of espionage. We really need to think about this in the framework of the usual things we do to try and harm other nations. These are things rivals do to bring down enemies. It's not in the domain of warfare. And we keep focused on that. We're going to kind of distract ourselves from the things we need to do to protect ourselves. And that's the real tragedy of this domain. And you know, Thomas Ridd wrote a great book about that. And that's a big topic I cover in my book. Yeah, and the, um, it, we've. And, and I agree a lot with your premise. I mean, we, we have really militarized, especially in this town, right? It gets to there earlier, right? By talking about the fears, um, it's led us down this path. Not that the DOD wanted to militarize this, but it's where we've ended up with they've got the biggest budget, they've got the most people, it's that mindset that's taken over, um, right? We talk a lot more about deterrence than we talk about innovation, for example. Um, and uh, now, sometimes we've heard, and I haven't heard on this panel, some people that say cyber war will never happen. And you know we're 25 years into the in, into it's been about 25 years since the first cyber conflict, maybe coming up on 30 now. So I think it is way too early to say whether we will or will not have warfare, a, a real war with real dead people on each side that only takes place in cyberspace. I can absolutely see that. Right? I mean it is you know over the next 10, 20, 30, 80, 120 years from now. I mean I absolutely can see. You've got two strong military powers, maybe with nuclear weapons, that they're running this war that happens to be over the network, and neither one wants to escalate for one reason or another to kinetic weapons. I can easily see that happening. Um, you could almost see, say that's happening even now with Iran, Israel, United States, where they're all happening, okay, it's going to, to me, I sometimes call it cyber battle of Britain, right? Battle of Britain, you had air forces that fought one another independently of the fights in the other domains. Um, yeah, the, the British and the Germans, the French were killing each other in, in North Africa and in and, and North Atlantic, but you had this fight that was independ relatively independent. And you could ease, I can easily see that kind of unfolding. So be really careful if anyone says with certainty what they think the future of cyber conflict is going to look like, because there's a lot of things that are happening, and we don't even really ask that question. Two quick points on that. Uh, the first is that this, you know, militarization of cyberspace is not something that's, or, or of thinking about cyber conflict is not something that's unique to the cyber mm. area, right? A lot of things DOD is playing an outsized role in, um, particularly in terms of U.S. foreign policy. I could make a very strong argument that the mm. State Department feels that. Um, because DOD has the resources. So I don't think this is necessarily a cyber issue in particular. That happens to a lot of foreign policy issues because you know, where's the money in the federal government? It's in the Defense Department rather than in, although the intelligence community does have funds, but not on the scale that DOD has, frankly, for things like this. The second point is I think we need to be a little careful when we talk about the role of the military because the military is not one thing. I actually think that there's a really valuable role for the National Guard in cyber issues. Um, we can, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the pitch and we can talk about this, uh, talk about this afterwards. 
um, you know, there's, we don't think about that. We tend to think of people on active duty, and there will always be a role for people on active duty in the military to protect DOD networks, certainly, mm -hmm. uh, possibly outside that as well, but I think mm -hmm. that will be primarily what they do. But the National Guard has, has two abilities that I think make it a, a valuable partner in the U.S. national effort to try to address uh, you know, the, the vulnerabilities that come with this. The first is that it's a way of getting talent into the military yeah. that you couldn't get otherwise, right? The competition with the private sector for talent. Well, you know, through the Guard, you can bring in somebody who works for Google or for, you know, or for Microsoft or something and take their skills that they're applying on the sharp end of the fight every day in the, you know, in mm -hmm. the private sector and bring that in to look at the national level and to apply some of those abilities. You'll never be able to get someone like, you know, with, who's interested in that kind of career to serve on active duty all the time. But you can still, it's still a way of leveraging them and bringing them in. Also on the cyber defense side, I would say in terms of all the vulnerabilities of networks, um, the state and local government networks, not the federal government, not you know, some of the big private sector, but the state and local governments and small businesses are particularly vulnerable. Um, and I would say that, the, for example, I've done some work with the California National Guard. They're doing tremendous work as a trusted clearinghouse. They're not doing a lot of the work of the network defense, but they can do some assessments and they're bringing together people because they live in communities to be able to address that. So I just wanted to throw that out there because we don't think about that as a military role, but that is something that the military can, can bring to bear. Question here. Hello, thank you for being here. Really interesting talk. My name is Sahan. I'm a student at the University of Iowa. I'm interning this summer uh, here in Washington, D.C. And my question is regarding, um, you know, mostly the private sector. You know, America is well known for having a lot of, you know, private companies. Uh, and, you know, we are a very innovative country, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether if it's the Uber or Google or whether it comes to defense. But the main issue is, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, foreign foreign countries, uh, you know, hacking into these companies, mm -hmm. trying to steal sensitive data, and you know, the hard work of American innovators, and take that to their advantage. You know, we've seen that. Uh, uh, you know, we've seen that happen. You know, uh, from many many even even uh, foreign intelligence uh, uh, services have hacked into these private companies. Uh, uh, as people who are expert in this field, uh, what what kind of uh, what kind of advice? Uh, uh, have you been giving to private companies, big companies, tech companies to really protect their sensitive data? And also, has the DOD, uh, Homeland Security, have, been, ha have they been working uh, in collaboration with these companies to help them protect their uh, sensitive uh, trade secrets? Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll start. Um, so I would say, uh, first and foremost, it needs to be a priority for those companies. Um, yeah. Many of those companies don't, it's changing, it's changing rapidly, but many of those companies still think of um, the cyber world and the, the infrastructure as a commodity, as if it was the motor pole, as if it was delegable to a group of people who do information technology. So they conduct operations essentially in one place and that they delegate responsibility for the infrastructure in support of that to various parties, the payroll shop, the HR shop, the IT shop. Um, IT is a component of operations in terms of how we use that, um, how we store wealth and treasure, how we communicate, how we reach out to opportunistic or dangerous environments. IT is a component of operations, so that's the first thing that's got to change. Second um, is they need to commit sufficient time and attention to understanding what wealth and treasure they've stored in their networks. Um, walk into many companies and you, you ask, you know, what data are you trying to defend? Um, and the answer at the end of the day really is, well, all of it, because we don't know which is more valuable than, than which is not. Um, and, and that's a fool's chase. You can't defend everything to kind of an equal level. And so you need to have a theory of, of strategy, a theory of the case as to what it is you're trying to defend. 
you need to defend not abstractions of data, parameters, links, operating systems, but the data itself, which means you have to understand in something approaching real time what's actually happening inside your networks. That's a fundamentally different security strategy than buying every last widget and deploying those and saying my security strategy is the compilation of all of those tools. So, so I've largely given you kind of a, the lead-in of a technical strategy, but it starts with first and foremost that being something that's important enough to the company that the CEO, the COO, the board will essentially take some responsibility for that. It starts there. Now, at some point, they should and deserve the material support of those who provide infrastructure to them in the private sector, the government who perhaps can kind of do some consequence management, enable them with information the government has kind of achieved at some high price, through intelligence methods or through diplomatic relationships, and perhaps an extremist defend them. But it needs to start with and at the company itself. I, I can't improve on that answer at all. Um, I'll just come at it from a different. Um, so one, it, it's absolutely true that the United States doesn't do that kind of espionage that, that China especially is, is doing to the United States. Um, so we don't, we're, we're not involved in that. Um, I can say from firsthand experience, and I, and I know Chris would Chris would second that. Um, and as a broader point, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to make these equivalent at all in what I say, but whenever we read stuff, I mean, almost everything that all of us know about this topic, remember, we're hearing from one side of the fight. Right? I mean, if you imagine a courtroom, we're hearing from the defense counsel. Um, and I've seen this a lot when I was trying to do a history book on this topic. We are really loud about incoming fire. Right? When, when something happens to this country, like Shamoon, it is talked about as a wake-up call, and this is changes the, na the nature of what happened, and this is incredibly aggressive, and look at what happened. Um, but we heavily classify the outbound fire. Um, we don't talk about it. We shut up about it. Um, right, like that point I made about Shamoon, right? that Shamoon got hit by a wiper worm a couple months before uh, they hit back with Shamoon that Iran got hit with a wiper worm before they hit back with Shamoon. How many people knew about that? How many people have heard from US government officials that Shamoon was an absolute wake-up call and just goes to show how dangerous Iran is, but hadn't heard that they were actually countering? Um, now, maybe there was something that they had done to someone else that led that to lead to them. But just remember when you hear this that we're hearing generally one part of the story from one of the combatants. <laughs> And I think one of the key issues, too, is how many wake-up calls do we need? I kind of love the baseball story, yeah, because yeah, if yeah. you read all the, the, the details about the, the, sink, the Cardinals hacking of the Astros, it's really about some guy didn't change his password, and they just used it when he moved to a new team. That's all that happened. And this is a deeper thing we need to think about. What do we need to protect, and how are we protecting it? And you know, are we changing our passwords? Are we using two-step verification? Are we doing even the simple things? And we don't even think about that until the information is gone, until we lost something. And that, that's a problem. We need to be proactive. And I've been calling the baseball the cyber deflate gate, right? Exactly. I mean, who knew what, you know, I mean, did, I'm sure Belichick's behind it somehow. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Right up here in the front, please. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. Thank you for a splendid presentation. And Nora, as you may know, the British military has been trying to do that with their reserves to recruit talent, mm. and they're not faring very well. There's a difference, obviously, but mm. it's a good idea, but it may be some heavy lifting. My question returns to grand strategy. You asked the panelists to summarize, and I thought they gave 
great hors d'oeuvres. Consistency, <laughs> clarity, and context. I think that's great. I'm after the main course. Um, when we get desperate, we say we need a Manhattan Project or we need the Marshall Plan. What we don't say is the reason the Manhattan Project worked, and I'm not suggesting either is relevant here, was because we had something called E equals MC squared that proved that it could work. And the Marshall Plan spent billions of dollars of money in the United States that stimulated our economy that we then shipped to help rebuild the world that had been destroyed. Uh, what would be your equivalence of the E equals MC squared and the billions of dollars that yep. we spent here to undergird the Marshall Plan that might apply to cyber? Give me a couple of lines on the grand strategy as you would outline it if you could. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, def I'll defer. I'd start with education. Um, so I, I think that um, the grand strategy would be that we're, um, we're bringing generations into this, assuming that they innately, intuitively understand this technology, uh, what its implications are, how the data is stored, processed, transmitted, what the risks are, what the opportunities are that they enjoy in this space, and they do not. Um, Apple, Google, others have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams in making it a sufficiently intuitive proposition that you don't need to anymore. Ask somebody how many, ask somebody the age of 18, 19, how many of you have programmed a computer? How many of you actually built a computer? How many of you know it's inside that, how many of you have changed the oil in your car, right? We don't do that anymore. And I'm not saying everyone needs to be kind of a cybernaut. Everyone needs to know how to program to the nth degree in Java or whatever the language of the day might be. But, but we need a fundamentally deeper understanding of the, the nature of this technology so that we can embrace and pursue its opportunities and so that we can understand the risks and we can properly balance the two against each other. That's a Manhattan Project. Normally, I would have disagreed with you when you, when you start on education. Um, but when you're doing the intergenerational, I think that's important, right? I mean, the, you know, 20 years from now, if we, when, as people that grew up with this technology come in, um, mine comes down to um, the attackers have always had the advantage in this space. I was finding quotes in the history book back to 1979, um, you know, even before what we'd really think about internet, that the attackers have the advantage. And in almost every kind of conflict, since we first started picking stick and stone up against one another, the relationship with defense and offense has changed over time, except, except nuclear and maybe space. But in, every other, you know, in almost every other circumstance, it goes back and forth. Um, and so I, I have hope. I mean, to me, the American strategy starts with defense has to get better than offense. We have to believe that that's possible. Um, and that has to get done. And if we don't believe that's possible, then we might as well get away with whatever we can while the getting's good. Everybody might as well get away with what they can while the getting's good. Um, if we think defense can get better than offense, um, we can measure that. For example, when we look at the hard statistics like the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, one of the core sources of hard data in our field, every year the attackers are able to break in faster, and every year it takes longer for the defenders to detect them, in general, in, in general kind of hand-wavy terms. If we can get defense better than offense, we can see that we should see that flip. To me, it's what a real strategy can be about, because we can measure it, we can try to get it. To get there, you have to operate at scale, like, there are some places where we could just get complete classes of attacks and do away with classes of attacks so that scale works for us rather than the bad guy. I would love, I tried to get this in the president's talking point to Stanford again, is to get him to say, we want to get, by 2020, we want to get the number of botnets down to the level they were in 2010. Taking in these political priorities and overlaying them on this technical domain. That's a presidential thing to say. He could stand up and say that with um, Prime Minister Abe 
or Angela Merkel and say, we're going to do this together. And I think that's, that's how I try and approach this, and especially by putting the non-states at the center of it. I think uh, I, I wrote a War on the Rocks piece today. It's called The Real Fog of Cyber War. And there's two questions. <laughs> One is we don't really know what we can do at the operational level because, as Jay said before, we keep all this stuff secret. And this is a problem when we're trying to actually apply it in the military domain. These captains, these, you know, these, these low-level, uh, I mean, I don't mean to disparage them, but these low-level operations people don't exactly know what we can do because we haven't really done these deep dissections of these operations as they've been going on. And the other problem is if we don't do that, we don't ask the deeper question of what should we do. And that's a real problem. We don't really know what we should do because we haven't really discussed the more ethical questions of cyberspace. We talk a lot about norms. We talk a lot about just war in cyberspace. But have we really discussed where our capabilities are and where we can leverage these capabilities? And what would be right? What would be just? What would be good? Because we don't really know what we can do because we're not even starting that conversation. And we're keeping it behind closed doors. We're keeping it secret. And this is a global problem for everyone. Because I keep saying the cyber domain is so important for education. Yeah. It's so important for research. Yeah. It's so important for business, not just for the military. And this is a deep societal level question that we need to engage ourselves on. We now have more hands than we have minutes left. So I'm going to start <laughs> bunching questions. And I'm going to ask uh, each of you, I'm going to take three questions. I'm going to ask, ask each of you to respond to whatever you find most salient, because you're not going to be able to respond to everything. And I want to try to get another round of three questions in after that in the back. Thanks. Zach Biggs with Janes. Um, I wanted to ask you a broader policy question. Uh, when we look at deterrence being an example, uh, one of the issues that we face is a lack of agreement on definitions. I know Chris Painter, the State Department coordinator, has talked about sitting down with his Chinese counterparts and just complete disagreement as to what constitutes government activity versus private sector activity, et cetera. Is it possible to start coming up with these broader policies without agreement on terms, without agreement on who can do what? And if it is possible, what's the step? And if it's not possible, how do you start to get agreement on those terms? Woman back there on the aisle. Um, my name is Amy. You were talking a little bit before about um, government private sector cooperation, but at the same time, this general sense of, of distrust between the public and private sector. So, how, how can we ensure this sort of cooperation with and sort of dispel fears of abuse in that relationship as well? Since I think that's really important, it's something you need to be able to express to the public. Um, who do have concerns about how much government oversight and how much government um, interference, if you may say, goes along with that relationship. Uh, Steve Winters, uh, independent researcher. Uh, on this offense-defense uh, issue that you raised, uh, what's the view of the panel on the role of security companies like Symantec or it's now Duku? 2.0 was mentioned, Kaspersky, where now it appears they've become open game in this cyber war. What, what is their proper role, and should they be open game? I'll okay. turn to the panel. We'll go in turn brief responses. OK. Um, defense better than offense, right? I mean, I think if we made a clear priority that defense, and we're going to have to, we know to achieve defense, we're going to have to do our capabilities, offense or intelligence capabilities differently, then that, then that helps, um, just because I want to piss off Chris. Um, we might look at, do we really want offense and defense in the same organization? 
Um, maybe that gives you better defense, but if it scares your private sector, then you might be optimizing for the wrong thing. Um, for terms, Zach, um, then I, uh, terms gets us caught up a lot, and people want to define things and come up with taxonomies. Clarity of understanding, clarity of meaning is much more important. I've been in, I don't know how many meetings in the Pentagon where they say, well, we can't decide this yet because we haven't decided on the terms yet. But the basic things we're talking about haven't changed since the 90s. I mean, there really has not changed all of that much. Um, and so as long as we've got that clarity of meaning. Um, and last on semantic, I think this is interesting. Um, Kerry, uh, Secretary Kerry came out last week? No, uh, two, two months ago, ago. Um, in Seoul and said he laid out the norms, for example, that certs are off limits for disruptive attacks. I'm really curious if we think a national cert is off limits for a disruptive attack, what do we think about Symantec and the other companies? Unfortunately, what you're seeing, especially in this town, um, is an us versus them in cybersecurity companies. Like Kaspersky is them, without a doubt. And, and not just here, but in Moscow too, right? I'm not saying that we're, we're the only ones that have gotten involved in this. Um, and it's really interesting that you're starting to see, as much as we say we don't want national borders, you're really starting to see that come, come out. Um, for, first to the relationship between the government and the private sector. Oftentimes, the best way to push a, a relationship into a positive quarter is to lead in that relationship, putting something on the table first. Right? So the government might say to the private sector, I have things I want to share with you that the private sector would find genuinely beneficial. It has been doing that. But it might do that to some greater degree or with some greater um, transparency. Um, the government might say, I'm going to lead with incentives as opposed to consequences in terms of helping the private sector. And it lets the private sector help define what those things might be, right? And embodies those then in statute or policy as the private sector would guide the government's hand. Um, with respect to um, the U.S. and other nations sitting down at the table and talking about irreconcilable differences, sometimes they're simply irreconcilable because the objectives are fundamentally different. But you can at least start by saying what those objectives are with clarity because those nations are listening to us and they hear various parties within the nation, the private sector, the government, aspects within the government, disagreeing with each other. And so therefore, we're incoherent at a distance. And we can at least start with that and kind of reduce to the minimum pile necessary those things that then um, kind of appear to be monolithic to that other nation state and then try to work those things off. Um, and we can then, within that pile, say these are the things we find agreeable, these are the things we don't, these are the consequences we'll bring to, bring to bear, choose wisely right, on the other side of that. And with respect to private sector entities taking on um, responsibilities for defense or perhaps, you know, I thought you were suggesting possibly more, um, you know, I think that we should um, allow the private sector to do as much as it can, but be careful um, about having them step into inherently governmental roles. Not because they're not good at it, they possibly might be even better at it than the government itself, but those inherently governmental roles then often trip other governments taking inherently governmental responses, and all of a sudden you now have this hornet's nest on your hand of something that's been tripped by um, something that's driven by market forces um, that all of a sudden becomes nation state on nation state using multiple instruments of national power. I'll be quick. Uh, so on trust, uh, there's going to be a generations-long damage from the Iraq war. And it will take time to move beyond that. I think that's what is really needed here. I think the Obama administration has done great, but uh, we'll see what happens with the next administration. 
Uh, in terms of terms, I blame political scientists and other academics. Uh, I thought the whole job of um, being an academic was to make up terms. Um, but like Jason said, uh, the key point is, like, and I do this in my book, is you want to think about why you're using these terms and what their ends are, not necessarily what they mean and if you can agree on them, but the, the purpose of the term is really the key aspect to look at. Now, for cybersecurity firms, the real problem I have is they really play a threat inflation role, and that's a big issue. We wouldn't let some earthquake insurance company go around and show pictures of India and then go to Indiana and say, you need earthquake insurance. We wouldn't let them do that, but we let these cybersecurity firms do that. And I think it's just, it's an unregulated market that's gone too far. And it bothers me when we read these news articles and the only people commenting are cybersecurity firms who have a vested interest in selling their wares. They can be great companies, they can be great to protect our infrastructure, but then they're going a bit too far in inflating the threat, and that's a key problem. I, although I would say the government government officials do that with their, oh, with their sure. own budget yeah. involved, too. Yeah. It's not just private sector. We're really short on time, so I'm going to take two final questions. One here, one here. I'm going to make a comment, and then I'll turn it to you for not just responses to the questions, but final thoughts, anything you want to wrap with. Great. So let's start here. Thank you. I'm Jeannie Nguyen with Voice of Vietnamese Americans. What do you think the significant risk is with the recent incident happened with the OPM affecting four millions of uh, federal personnel and to that, what are the potential conflicts and in what way would you think or suggest we should do or the government should do to mitigate to mitigate the effects to all of our people, four millions of people. And you're each going to have 15 seconds on that. Yep. Yes, on the, on the aisle. <laughs> Sorry. Right Thank you very much. Peter Michael Nielsen, Danish Embassy. Um, attribution has been mentioned, but it hasn't really been a, a, a great focus in this debate, but it seems to be a great focus in the present sort of US strategies uh, looking forward as part of, of deterrence. So I would ask you to com maybe comment a little bit more about that, what kind of role you see that play. Also because what we've seen until now is that it's actually only the US who has been out saying, well, there are these, these actors behind. We haven't really seen others uh, do that. And yeah. how do you also see that? Thank you. Okay. I'm going to take the prerogative of the moderator to ask the last question, which is totally from out of left field. But with the talent <laughs> on this panel, I can't resist asking. Um, you know, your final comment after you address everything else is, I want to know what keeps you awake at night, what you're most worried about in the cyber realm. So, Brandon, let's start with you. Whatever la final thoughts you want on those questions and what um, keeps you awake. What keeps you up at wake at night is, is the ending of Game of Thrones real and will that change and uh, <laughs> is, is he coming back? Um, but no, the real issue is, um, I'm really glad about panels like these. I'm really glad the cybersecurity discourse has changed and shifted because when I started, it was all prognostication. It was all about what could happen. And we've really moved beyond that. And I think that's great. And I'm really happy with how the discussion is going. And I'm really excited to see how the field will go. And I really encourage students and any young people, anyone interested in technology to work in this field because the landscape is a bit barren. And there's a lot of things to do in this, in this realm in terms of academia, government, everything. This is a growth industry. This is something we need talent to work towards, and we're, um, we need to focus on that. Okay. Um, with respect to the, the three questions, um, so in terms of the risks exposed by the theft of data, I'll go a little bit long on this. My family and friends, the thing they find most shocking is that the federal government has 14 million employees. They were like, who knew, right? <laughs> um, but, but that said, I think it's been well played in the press as to what the risks are, right? There's the violation of privacy that's a kind of a personal value um, in the United States. And so therefore, you know, that having been 
you know, lost, you can't get that back. There's the possibility that some of that loss of privacy will then put those people um, exposed to risk of coercion, um, kind of things of that sort, identity theft, things of that sort. So, so those are pretty well-known, pretty well-described, and we can't buy those back, but we can mitigate those and drive those down in all the standard ways. The clarion call ought to be those to those who are continuing to defend data, whether it's in the private sector or in the public sector, to finally get their act together. Um, in terms of attribution, I think we often work attribution too late. I don't think attribution's always necessary. Um, kind of, you know, Jay, I think, um, has written um, extensively and well on this. Um, we can do many things without um, attributing these to actors. There are things we know how to do that simply kind of stop the harm, stop the flood. Um, but that said, we work attribution from a cold start, and that's almost always a fool's chase. We have to actually understand the neighborhood, the actors in the neighborhood, the nature of the tools people use in the neighborhood in order, as something is happening, to say, oh, I think I know who this is or what this is. Um, kind of, you think about the North Korean activities against Sony, I think that's largely the case that was built. We know something about the actor. It's less about the baseball that's left in the catcher's mitt that tells you something about the pitcher. Um, and then finally, in terms of what I lie awake at night, I lie awake worrying that um, the cyber um, realm that, that we kind of talk about is so full of opportunity, so full of extraordinary powers of transformation that it will flag or falter because we haven't built in the resilience, the robustness, or effected the collaboration across the various parties that are necessary to sustain its forward progress. I worry about that. Um, and we need to figure out how to actually kind of work this as a horizontal problem as opposed to a vertical problem with a depth of expertise. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think we need to be concerned if our, ki if our kids, when they're our age, are they going to have an internet that is rich, is free, as awesome as the one that we had? And, and not, and a lot of the trends go, go the wrong direction. Um, on national responsibility, I'm sorry, on attribution, um, I tend to think attribution is the, tech, is the technician's question. I think in this town, if you're a general, if you're an elected official, um, if you're an, um, a diplomat, the better question is national responsibility. Because at the end of the day, the president doesn't need to know where the ones and zeros came from. The president needs to know, I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to call what national leader. And attribution tends to be bottom up. It tends to be technical. National responsibility can come top down, like what Brandon was talking about. Um, you can tell a lot from the context and the conflict. And so I'm trying to push national responsibility as the better question in many cases than attribution. Um, for one, one word of caution, I always, I always get a little worried when I hear people, especially in the military, talk about capability. Cyber is a capability. You can use it on offense. You can use it on defense. It can be used in different ways. For me, that, I always think of French and German armored officers in 1938, right? If you were an armored officer in 1938 and you saw a tank as a capability, well, you can use it on offense, you can use it on defense, you can use it in different ways. One of those officers was really right and one was really wrong. And when we focus on capabilities, we're stuck on this tactical and technical aspect of it. We're not looking at the larger conflict dynamics. What if, 10 years from now, the dominant form of cyber conflict is autonomous? You've got autonomous agents that are hacking, and, you've got and you have to have autonomous defenders, and it's like high-frequency trading. All of a sudden, we're going to have these 6,000 cyber folks at Cyber Command that are geared for the wrong fight. Just like having F-15s and F-22s aren't the right weapons for the fight that we've, that we've been in for the last 12 years. So we've got to think beyond those mere capabilities. And what really keeps me up, I think we're at the Internet's most dangerous moment. One of the earliest rules of cyber intelligence was those with the capability lacked the intent. 
Russia and China can really hit us hard, but why would they? And we can hit them. Those with the intent lack the capability. Al-Qaeda and other terrorists would love to spill our blood over cyberspace, but they really can't. For me, to some degree with Iran, if the talks fail, but really with Putin. You've got someone that is really capable, that might feel that his regime's existence is at threat, and we have now dealt out of the global economic and financial system. He might decide now is the time to use just deniable enough little green bites and just upend the table. Like, you're not going to let me play? Heck with you guys. And we've never had that point before where you have that capability intent really starting to line up in the ways you have right now with Putin. So, dun, dun, dun. Okay. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you very much. Before I formally conclude oh. the panel, I'm going to turn it back over to Jay, but in his role as the director of the Cyber Statecraft, Statecraft Initiative, not in his role as a panelist. Great. Um, thanks. And uh, you've seen us all drinking from these great cyber statesman mugs up, up here. And we've got some of these for, for our co-panelist and, uh, and moderator, because um, we couldn't have a Cyber Statecraft Initiative without statesmen and women. And so thanks very much to all of you. For a, for a great panel. So thank you very much. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you all very much for coming. Thanks, I hear there's going to be wine and cheese outside. So please uh, hang around and uh, talk amongst yourselves and to the members of the panel.